This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. My name is Huda Khatibi. I'm an Iranian-American writer and community organizer and movement strategist, and I'm F3L at the law school. I run a worker cooperative called Bluetin Production, which is an immigrant, refugee, and working-class woman of color apparel manufacturing worker co-op, hoping to set new international standards in labor and sustainability within fashion supply chains. We're also building a massive community space and abolitionist organizing hub in Chicago called 63rd House in collaboration with youth black and brown organizers. After former President Trump imposed the Muslim travel ban in 2017, when Katibi saw people who looked like her in the media, they weren't attorneys, but always people who needed help. There's just a huge lack of attorneys of color who have good politics. And so I think that was just one one thing that I was thinking about in the back of my mind. And as I continued to do research on different state-based tools of violence against Muslim communities and communities of color, and I learned about the National Security Entry Exit Registration System that Bush implemented right after 9-11 that caused over 30,000 people to be deported and not one, not one single quote-unquote domestic terrorist found, of course, and the ways in which lawyers aided a lot of that work, who were trusted in the community and, you know, pushed people to register, and understanding my own trauma of, of loved ones interlinked with a lot of these sorts of legal failures, I think made me begrudgingly come to law school uh, to attempt to help fill some of those gaps rather than to become like a practicing nine-to-five attorney. Katabi was born in Oklahoma in 1995. Her parents immigrated to the U.S. from Iran in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War to earn their doctorate degrees. In sixth grade, Katabi started wearing the headscarf, or hijab, to build a deeper relationship with Islam and to express her Muslim identity. Um, I think that played a huge factor in my own growth and sense of self and the way of, and all the learning and unlearning I had to do growing up as visibly Muslim in a very white supremacist school and neighborhood. I do think that there was a, a massive shift both in my own sense of self with respect to just like being a middle schooler and, you know, losing all your friends and being bullied incessantly and being assaulted and, you know, all, all the fun stuff that comes with being visibly Muslim in the South during Bush years. So I think a lot of that absolutely played a huge role in um, just shaping my own personal growth as well as relationship to politics and um I think especially when it comes to like surveillance and how clothes are actually inherently political. And so a lot of my work professionally and personally has sort of stemmed from a lot of those experiences. Katabi is the author of the 2016 photography book, Tehran Street Style. While doing research for the book and for her college thesis, she traveled to Iran where she talked to people who worked in the fashion industry. A lot of my research in Iran was on the like underground fashion scene in Iran and sort of the role of the Iranian government in and mandatory dress, which is 
now so timely, but <laughs> how mandatory dress codes in Iran are designed in order to create an, and enforce a national identity on women's bodies and sort of contextualizing that in its uh, political and social history within Iran and then interviewing people who are designers and fashion people in the industry and their sort of understandings of their role and the designs that they make and why they why they do what they do. Wow. What did you learn about why they do what they do? I think what I was seeing in the U.S. is like, you know, a lot of headlines of like, oh, women are wearing jeans to defy the mullahs, you know, or like the, the closer that Iranian people can dress to Western ideas of dress code, the closer that they are to modernity and the closer that they, you know, and it's like a middle finger to Islam and tradition as like this like static backwards historic thing that has never changed. Um, so everything was just like drenched in Orientalism. And I think talking to people on the ground, it's clear that, you know, it, it, which is very obvious, but I think is unfortunately constantly lost <laughs> on people in these conversations. But you can be against both the Iranian government and the U.S. government. You can you can hold that at the same time. And the enemy of the enemy doesn't necessarily make them my friend. And being able to say, like, we we don't want Western intervention. We are not saying we want Western influence. But we also are saying we don't want mandatory dress code and we don't want a national identity imposed on our bodies in public spaces and policed for it. On September 16th, 2022, Masa Gina Amini, a Kurdish-Iranian 22-year-old woman, was murdered by Iran's so-called morality police for allegedly not wearing the hijab in accordance with government standards. Her death sparked protests in Iran that are still happening today, nearly three months later. The government has been violently cracking down on protesters. Hundreds of people have been killed, including dozens of children. Although a senior official in the Iranian government confirmed on Monday, December 5th, that the morality police had been shut down, the first concession by the government since the protests began, the mandatory dress code remains in place. It's unclear how the government plans to enforce the laws moving forward. Katibi has been an outspoken advocate for the protesters and what they stand for. In some of your interviews that I've seen, you talk a lot about how it's not about, it's it's about so much more than a headscarf. It's just a lot deeper than that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. To take it back to Iranian voices on the ground, the main demand that we're hearing is Zan Zindagi Azadi, or Woman Life Freedom, which is a Kurdish anti-imperialist, feminist, anti-capitalist chant um, slogan historically that was used and now that has been translated and picked up in Farsi and popularized. And I think this slogan itself is is not a a romantic, fun thing to say, but I think is connected to very tangible demands. I think this the slogan is saying that we we want total liberation and progress and that there should be no gender delay in that progress, that women's rights aren't secondary but central to the idea of how to build a new a new society for everybody that centers women and women's bodies, but is for everybody. And I think that that is connected to that's everything that is public policing and enforcement of, you know, violent norms on women's bodies in public spaces. And it also is economic mobility and economic liberation. And it's connected to the sort of 
divide and conquer strategies that the Iranian government has used against ethnic minorities in Iran. And these protests have undone decades of all of this. It's created class solidarity in Iran. It's created gender solidarity. It's created ethnic and religious minority solidarity. And I think that this, and I think that's why this, this slogan is so powerful and also has so much universal applicability is because at the core is a sort of commentary on capitalism, patriarchy, and um, state power. And these are issues that are, are global and I think allows so many people to build people solidarity with the people's movements in Iran that is really beautiful and exciting. I mean, these protests are coming at a time of both a culmination of policing of bodies in public spaces and particularly women's bodies, um, and also a constant closure and repression of spaces that were dedicated to having open conversations about politics. Um, we see more and more like very like dictatorship style silencing tactics that have not allowed these conversations to be to come out in like quote unquote democratic ways, which again like no longer exists in Iran um, mm-hmm. and haven't existed in Iran for decades. So I think that that's what I think is is really hitting at the core and distinguishes these protests from others before it is that this is this is one that's calling for nothing short of the end of dictatorship, which means everything from women's rights to education to class, gender, everything. So university students in Iran and across the world have been really instrumental in the protests and speaking out. And I'm, I'm curious just what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so, I mean, there is a very rich history of Iranian students, leftist protest movement on campuses in Iran. A lot of that has been very effectively shut down and silenced over the past several decades by the Iranian government. And so I think a lot of a lot of Iranian elders, I think, are honestly surprised to see how powerful student organizing has been in this moment. And I think it, it does live in a tradition of very active student mobilization in Iran as a place where historically people shared ideas and really was a site of um, central organizing against the government both before and after the revolution. And I think it it has been sort of re-revived in this moment in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time that is very exciting. And I think also what has been both just very heartwarming and extremely heartbreaking just to see schoolgirls, like middle school aged, like young kids, you know, throwing down mandated dress codes, throwing down their mandatory hijabs and like outsting the, they're like, you know, educators and outsting like the, the education director of the school. And that's power. And that was um, as, as exciting as it is. It's also heartbreaking that like young kids are put in this position where they have to fight for their rights um, on this very basic fundamental level. And I don't want to romanticize that like these kids just can't be kids. But I think it also just speaks to how intense and intergenerational this trauma is that is being felt by Iranians, that it isn't just, you know, a specific class of people. It's not just a specific type of people, but it is um, it's children in the streets, it's elders in the streets and everybody in between. Mm -hmm. How come you've decided to be so outspoken? I know that a lot of people, I mean, 
Yeah, a lot of people choose not to. And I'm just I'm curious why that's been something that you're passionate about. Yeah, I think like understanding and looking at where where we come from and being able to recognize that like at the end of it all we're all going to die. Like all of us are going to die very quickly, like very soon. In the Quran it says our our lives are going to feel like an afternoon. And I, I feel that, and I feel like that line always gets to me. And so I, I don't understand why being silent to maybe be a little bit more comfortable for like two more minutes of my life is worth having a life that I regret. So I, I feel like our, our time here is short and we have one purpose, and it's just to do whatever our, like our best possible um, attempt at doing what we think and feel is right in any given moment. And so why waste it doing anything else? Hoda Kotebi is a third-year law student at UC Berkeley. You can learn more about her and her work on her website at hodakotebi.com. H-O-D-A-K-A-T-E-B-I dot com. I'm Anne Bryce, and this is Berkeley Voices, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. If you enjoy Berkeley Voices, tell a friend about us. It really helps get the word out. And you can follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have another show called Berkeley Talks, which features lectures and conversations at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.